giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Paul English, CEO and co-founder of Lola, previously co-founder of Kayak. So, Paul, after co-founding Kayak in 2004 and departing in 2013, you started Blade in Boston. And Blade was described as a consumer technology foundry. What was the original idea behind Blade? So I'm running Lola now, which is a business travel software company. And this is my fifth company. So the Kayak was my fourth company. And I did what a lot of entrepreneurs do after coming off sort of a big hit, which is I started a quote unquote incubator, which really means I didn't know what the fuck I really wanted to do next, but I wanted to meet a lot of entrepreneurs. So I raised a bunch of money. My CAC investors are very kind to back me. And then we over, I want to say an 18 month period invested in half a dozen companies and created two of our own companies. And what we wanted to do was focus on companies in particular that are really interested in brand. We started out saying consumer, but we actually did back a couple B2B companies that I love their founders and I love their brands. And I'm definitely someone who loves good tech brands. So Mm -hmm. that was the idea. I want to dig in on the brand thing a little bit. So when you say that good tech brands, what, what does that mean to you? It means a name that's evocative. It means a brand that's consistently communicated. So every interaction with the company feels like it's one company. I mean, everything from, I was just you know joking that to set up this call, I had to do a password reset on Skype. It took 19 steps. And those steps were very inconsistent in a looking feel. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the heck Skype is trying to do from a brand standpoint right now, but it doesn't look like it's speaking with one brand. And I want to make sure that a really good tech brand, everything from when you meet someone at the company, you talk to them, their business card, how they answer the phone, how they do their email, do they have email signatures, what their software looks like in the default case, what the software looks like in error case. I mean, everything about the technology should be consistent in terms of how it's trying to express itself. And I tend to like entrepreneurs who care about this stuff. Mm-hmm. It may be obvious, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. Why does it matter? I think it can become a unifying force for the company. And most importantly, I would say, it's gonna sound funny, I think most brand people would disagree with me, Mm -hmm. but the main reason I like a brand focus is it galvanizes people internally to all work together towards building one thing. Most brand people would probably say you do branding from a marketing standpoint and for an efficiency of customer communication and winning over trust of customers. And I certainly agree with all of that, but I actually also like it maybe even better for galvanizing the internal team on a Mm -hmm. mission. And where does that come from? Did did you do that at Kayak? We did it at Kayak for sure. And I've, even before Kayak, I was always obsessed with names and brands. And Mm -hmm. um, I always enjoy collaborating with entrepreneurs about what they should call their products and what they should call their companies. You know, I've said to a couple of friends that if I do an incubator again someday, you know, years from now after Lola, I might actually kind of require that entrepreneurs coming in, pick a really great name and then I'll fund them, I don't know, at least a hundred K just for the domain name purchase, just to make sure that people do have a cool name. 
Um, it's just, I don't know, it's just really important to me. At Kayak, we were very lucky to work with an extraordinary brand consultant named Carol Costello, who ran an agency in New York for many years. And she's the woman who came up with the name Kayak. She came up with the original brand positioning. She came up with the rebrand years later when we rebranded the company. And she really taught me quite a bit about brand, as did um, Robert Burge, who is the inside CMO for Kayak, who also is an exceptional brand person. What do er, like really early stage companies do You know, if, if they can't work with a company like that? When Steve Hafner and I raised our Series A for Kayak, I think we raised $5 million from General Catalyst, and then Steve and I each put a million in. I think we spent $250,000 on brand strategy and development in the first six months. We didn't name the company Kayak initially. We just had a placeholder name. We knew we wanted to come up with a brandable name. But we spent months working on it. And again, my, my memory could be wrong, but I think $250,000. If you don't have that budget, I would say try to network with people who you think represent brands well Mm -hmm. and just do a lot of bouncing ideas off of them. And the name itself is the most important part of branding, but there's a lot of other attributes that are almost as important as some people would say more important. So just try to um, network with people who represent brands Mm -hmm. and themselves have good brands. So it sounds like based on your experience, you're saying it's really important the name is really important, the brand is really important, but you can also change it, right? So if you can't afford to do that in the beginning, you can change the name once you are able to, right? Is that what you're saying? It's Well, it's tricky. Name changes and brand changes are tricky because mm-hmm. if you become really known for one thing, it's hard to tell people, oh, we were just kidding, we really weren't that, now we're something else. Like, I'll give you an example from the travel industry. So TripAdvisor, another local Boston-based travel company who I really admire a lot. I'm an extraordinary company. But they became known as the place for user-generated content and reviews, Mm -hmm. especially of hotels, but of restaurants and other things as well. Then, most recently, they've been trying to get people to say, we're not just about reviews, we want you to actually buy your hotels on TripAdvisor. And they've spent a fortune in advertising and changing their site to try to get people to do that. But the reality is, because their brand was so strong about reviews, the user intent is they came there to read and write reviews, and then when they would put pop-ups and things in front of them saying, buy a hotel now, they just didn't go for it no matter how hard they were marketed. So in Mm -hmm. that case, the brand did extraordinarily well to build the company that it is today, but the brand was so strong for that definition, it was difficult for them to turn a corner. Yeah. But that's pretty long into their history. It is. It is. They've been around for a while. So how far had you taken Kayak under the previous name? Yeah, so the stealth brand we had, I remember Mm -hmm. the day that Steve and I had to fill out the corporation papers. We're sitting at the office of General Catalyst in Cambridge. GC uh, is the company that backed Kayak. I view Joel Cutler as our third co-founder. And we had to incorporate under some name. And so we just picked Travel Search Company, Inc., knowing that we were definitely never going to go public with that name, (laughs) but we just kind of needed something to fill on the registration papers. I think we also, probably within five minutes of that, we said, you know, we don't even want people to know we're a search engine, so we also need a code name. And I made up a code name on the fly and said, let's call the company Runway 9. So the incorporation papers said Travel Search, but internally, our business cards and our code base, everything else referred to it as Runway 9 or R9. And it was only six months, maybe less than six months, maybe three months later, mm-hmm. that we picked the name Kayak and then rebranded and renamed the company. 
so it was kind of before it was from when we incorporated to when we launched the product we had a private beta before it was called kayak but the public beta by that time we did name it kayak yeah so going back to lola then lola was one of the things that you did in blade that's right did you go about the same process in terms of thinking about brand and thinking about name and investing heavily in it? We did. We mm -hmm. did. And I have to also say, you know, secret story about Kayak. Carol Costello and her team came up with five names, five mm -hmm. finalists. We had gone through dozens and dozens of names. And Kayak was actually our second choice. Our uh -huh. first choice was Lola. But back <laughs> in 2000, it's a true story, but back in 2004... We couldn't afford to buy the name. It was owned by a company that wouldn't sell it. And we didn't have that much money, so we didn't want to spend a fortune on the domain name. I think for kayak.com, which is our second choice, we bought the domain name for $30,000, which today, you know, 2018, it costs a lot more for nice words like that. But yeah. in 04, we got it for 30 grand. The five finalist names for kayak, just sort of FYI for trivia standpoint, was Lola was number one, kayak was number two, cake was number three, because who doesn't like cake? Rice was number four because it's ubiquitous and simple. And number five was probably a really terrible idea, but we liked it at the time, was hive, like a hive of activity. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so when we created Lola out of Blade, I said, you know what, this time I can afford to buy the name, and I really have always liked that name, so I'm just going to call it Lola. It's so funny that we've been talking about the name because I wasn't going to bring this up, but one of our clients is Lola the reproductive care products for women by women. And they have the domain name mylola.com. And when I saw that I was recording with you, I, I knew that I was going to be doing it, but I'm also scheduling a recording with them. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> and I was confused at, initially about which one it was. Yeah, the thing is, we're lola.com. So right. I would say, you know, with some humor, we're the real lola. Lola <laughs> also, there's probably, we have found about 25 companies named Lola, yeah. including a local restaurant uh, in Boston. Mm -hmm. If you go to lola.com slash lolas, that's Lola.com slash L-O-L-A-S. We list every company named Lola we've been able to find. Oh, so that's great. We have about 25 right now with links to their site. If your listeners know another company named Lola, they can just email me. My email address is paul at lola.com, and I'll put the other Lola up on our website. <laughs> that's great. But I, I agree. It is a super strong name, and you've obviously spent time with the brand as well. You know, I, I agree. It's also probably better than Kayak. It was probably your number one choice back then for a reason. Yeah, it's a portmanteau of two words, longitude, latitude, L-O-L-A, which is oh. kind of nice. But I also just like the sound of the word. I like the look of the word. Mm -hmm. And um, it's true that we're not the only company called Lola, just like Kayak is not the only company named Kayak. Right. And that's okay, right? You know, legally, it okay. it's totally okay if you're in different industries. Yeah, our trademark for the word Lola is for the travel industry. Right. But how much do you worry about that when you're thinking about names and thinking about brands? Um, you obviously have to do a trademark search to make sure that you have clear path within your industry. Right. Ideally, it'd be great if you owned a trademark across every industry. Mm -hmm. I think Amazon has done quite a bit of work to try to have right. the Amazon trademark across multiple industries. But um, for us, we're only ever going to be doing travel. Travel is a big enough industry that we can build quite a valuable company right. doing just travel. Well, I, it's probably also relative, right? So if there was another Lola that was so incredibly well-known, 
you right. probably wouldn't want to choose it That's as correct. your name. That's it's like, correct. well, we really like the name Microsoft, but we're doing right. a restaurant. Let's <laughs> let's you know, you're not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you're within Blade, you're working on Lola, and there was another idea that you were working on yourself as well, right? Right. So we had we invested in half a dozen companies, mm-hmm. but we created two of our own. And one of them is Lola, and I can give you the original vision for Lola, which is a little bit different, or quite different than what we're actually doing today. And then the second company was a mobile survey tool that can best be thought of as a competitive survey monkey, but it was really, really simple. It was a mobile app that let you set up surveys on the fly and send it out to people, publish to social media, et cetera. And it is a beautiful, beautiful product that didn't get traction. And in the same time, we had a different team working on Lola, mm-hmm. and Lola got traction really quickly. So we put the survey company aside, and then also ended up, I think we gave three or six months notice to the companies that were incubated within our space to leave. And then we took our nine Blade employees and made them all Lola employees. And anyone who was an owner of Blade, if you owned 1% of Blade, you now owned 1% of Lola. Mm-hmm. So we just did a cap table transfer. Mm-hmm. And all of our Blade employees became Lola employees, and we went full on to start working on it. How did you know that you wanted to do that? Or, or what was the indicator that you should do that? Well, you know, it's funny. When I left Kayak, I remember telling friends at Filmia, I'll never work and travel again simply because I've been there, done that. I spent 10 years of my life. And with each of my companies that I've co-founded, I've done them in different industries. So I've done a customer service company, which is called Get Human, which is a VC-backed company. I've done um, an e-commerce company, which is Boston Light. Our product is called QShop. We sold that to Intuit. I've done a security software company with my brother, Ed, called Intimute. We sold that to Trend Micro. And then after Kayak, I thought, you know, I'm going to switch industries again. And the original idea for Lola was actually a mobile app that made it really easy for you to manage tasks with a remote assistant. Hmm. And it was Joel Cutler, one of my investors, when I pitched him the idea, he said, it's an interesting idea, but why don't you do it just to travel? And it's like a light switch flipped, and all of a sudden I said, that sounds really fun, and you know what? I actually want to work and travel again because it's an incredibly fun industry. I mean, I myself travel pretty extensively. I love travel, and it's also just a fun thing to talk about with people. What was the transition like was you know everyone at Blade converting them to focus on Lola? Was was there an excitement around that, or was there any pain? No, there was a little pain. Mm-hmm. We have one really really exceptional guy in the Blade team who really was committed to consulting on multiple companies, and he just couldn't wrap his head around doing just one company. Yeah. So he helped me create Lola, but then he moved on to do other things, and. Um, it's a close friend of mine who I stay really close in touch with and someday might do something else with him again. But I think most of the Blade employees became full-time Lola employees mm-hmm. and stayed and to work on it. Did you have uh, the right mix of skills or did you have to add to the team right away that once you started to focus on one product? Well, interestingly, when we decided to really focus on one product, one of my first thoughts was, I want to make sure we design a good brand for this product. Mm -hmm. And I reached back out to my friend Carol Costello, who was still living in New York and running her agency there, and asked her if she would help me. And she ended up um, actually moving to Boston and helping us create and launch the Lola brand. So that was probably the most significant talent that we added into the mix. 
Mm-hmm. And aside from that, Stacy Scott was another really clutch hire. Stacy was hired to build customer service for us. And right now, you know, we're still small. We're 50 people overall. We have a dozen travel agents that cover 24 by 7 shift. And Stacy's really built the culture for that team. But she's also designed tools and a culture that are going to let us scale up where other companies are going to be the agents, not just our own employees. Mm-hmm. And we'll have an announcement probably sometime this summer about first partner that's going to be deploying Lola technology for their agents. And it's a big company. Oh, that's cool. And Stacy has helped form that vision. So as you've mentioned, you've started multiple companies over a long period of time now. How is what you're doing differently and how is starting Lola different? Yeah, I mean, one thing is, if you look at the five companies I've done, I go back and forth between a CTO and CEO role. Mm -hmm. So I sort of flip-flop. I think I'm a decent CEO. I'm a much stronger CTO. Lola, I'm the CEO. And I've just been really self-aware about the CEO stuff I'm really good at and then the CEO stuff that I'm terrible at. And I'm trying to figure out actually right now about how do I bring someone on board, mm-hmm. help do the CEO stuff that I am not good at or not interested in so I can just keep my focus on the two things I care most about, which is product and customer service. Mm-hmm. So what are the things that you're not as good at or crazy about? Yeah. So if you look at the things that I spend my time out that I feel confident about, it's product and design, Mm -hmm. branding, customer service, raising money, PR and hiring are probably my core skill set. The areas where I have opinions, like everyone has opinions, but I'm not as strong is the nuts and bolts of sales, a lot of details about business development, a bunch of aspects of marketing that I have no background in. Mm -hmm. And I'm weak in finance, Mm -hmm. and in general, I'm a little bit more on the creative side than the process side. Mm -hmm. That's good if you focus all your time on product invention and innovation, but it's also good to have people around me who are really good on the process side because I'm not. From the outside, looking at your team and, and having seen the team at Lola grow over the last few years, it strikes me that given your track record, you're able to attract top talent to your executive team. Is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, I would say with each company, I'm a little bit smarter than the last one about what I need Mm -hmm. in a team, both with their individual skills as well as their team skills. And for Lola, I think um, probably as good as I was at Kayak, probably a similar skill set about assessing people's individual contributive skills. I think where I'm stronger than I was at Kayak is, I think I do a much better job now assessing candidates on their team skills. And if you hang out at our office here in Boston, what people have told me that have come in to interview, whether they get hired or not, or different people that have visited us, is they always say, like, your team has the mojo. There's something special about how people are interacting with each other, and they can feel it when they're in our office. And that didn't happen by accident. You know, I put a lot of energy into it, and the first few people on my team put a lot of energy into it. Dennis Doughty is our CTO. He's a well-known CTO in Boston, MIT Mm -hmm. guy. He's extraordinary at hiring, and um, Stacy is extraordinary at hiring. And I think I would say the three of us, Dennis and Stacy and I, spend a lot of time talking about hiring. In fact, I just came from a meeting with the two of them. We're trying to recruit someone. And the three of us really care about the scalability and team and interaction and culture. And I think we've done a pretty good job. 
So when you identify an area where you say, I think we need to bring someone on, particularly if it's a, a senior leadership position, I, you don't have a CFO now or do you? We have a amazing director of finance, okay. but no CFO yet. Okay. No need for CFO right now. Okay. But you know, say you were to identify someone at that level that you wanted to bring on. How are you approaching it now? Do, are you pulling from the people that you've worked with before and saying, I'd really like to work with this person again? Or are you just opening up the position or does it depend? It depends. There's some of that. Like, for example, I have a few people from Kayak, but I don't want to have too many. Right. The guy who sits next to me, his name is Lincoln Jackson. He's our design chief here. We sat next to each other at Kayak for 10 years, and he and I led the design of Kayak, and now we're working together on Lola. He was really a clutch hire for us. But I don't want too many Kayak people here just because we're building a very different company than Kayak. And mm -hmm. I want people from other talented backgrounds to help design our culture and help design our product. So I'm always networking. And um, when there's someone that is described to me as really – exceptional and gifted at whatever their role is, I'll just convince them to go meet me for lunch or at a Starbucks or whatever, just to try to network and get to know them. And if there's a match to try to convince them to leave whatever they're doing now and come join us. Mm -hmm. I have a more of a like process question because this is one thing that I struggle with. Like when you meet someone and you, you really think that they're a good fit for what you're looking for and be a good culture fit, but they're a pretty senior level higher. Do you put them through like your traditional interview process at that point? There are certain techniques I have for how I interview that I use probably in most of my casual lunch meetings. And I do it in a way that people don't really feel like they're being interviewed. And I definitely let them drive the conversation as well. So it's not like I'm the banker trying to decide whether to give you a loan or not. It's a discussion. But I think one thing I have learned over the years is when you're going after someone who's really talented, if there's something specific about them that you really like, tell them what it is and share with them your excitement for whatever skill that they potentially can bring to your company. There's a woman on my team, Rachel, one of our key product managers and project managers. And when Stacy introduced to me her as a candidate, initially on the customer service side, she said, oh, she's amazing. She's been in the Army. She's a West Point grad. And I look at her resume, I'm like, great resume, but I don't know what this has to do with a tech company or customer service. And Stacey said, just trust me, just meet her, just meet her. And five minutes into the meeting, I basically said, all right, look, you've led military campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan. You're much tougher than me, but I'm bigger than you. And I'm not letting you out of this room until you sign an offer letter. <laughs> <laughs> like, she was like that awesome. And um, I've just learned that when you find someone who's great, you got to go for it. So when you built Kayak and, and you got to a certain point, it was a big company by the time you moved on, right? That's right. So when you're starting Lola again and you're building from scratch, like, are there lessons that you take away from that scale that you got to when it comes to how the product team works, how it organizes, how you move things to production? Like, or do you, do you say, no, we're not there yet. <laughs> you know, let's start out in this other way. Well, I think we have the advantage of being, in some aspects, a grown-up company and in other aspects, a brand-new startup. Like, for example, we got PCI compliance because we're an actual travel agent and we handle credit cards and all that. That's something that we did before at Kayak. Like, we just we know how to do that. Mm -hmm. And it's something that is laborious and takes a long time. And it's probably harder 
for brand new startup to get PCI compliant than some that's done before. And there's probably a dozen other examples like that, the things that there's, we've done before, so we know how to do them quickly and efficiently. But at the same time, we try to have some humility about saying we do not know all the answers and we want to hire people that helps figure it out. So for example, there's a guy on my team, Brendan Sullivan, who's our VP of product. He came to us on Facebook and his background was on the ad team at Facebook and product marketing. And now he's doing product management, which is a little bit different than what he'd done to Facebook. And even though I consider myself, so I'm a programmer by background, but if you had to pin me down to one particular, I would say I'm a product manager. And we actually didn't have product managers at Kayak, believe it or not, it was mostly me and Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And so Brendan, we bring into this role, he's new at it. And even though I've sort of been doing product management for 20 years, I look to Brendan a lot for how we should do process because he's newer at it, he's energetic, he reads a ton, he's meeting a lot of other companies, and he's bringing a lot of new ideas how to do things. So I'm not dictating to the team that we have to do process a certain way. I'm hiring people who I believe in, and they're helping define the process and the culture for how we want things to work at Lola. That's cool. So I spoke with David Cancel at Drift a few episodes ago, and he described really interesting process where they've broken into small teams, and each team is working on their own thing. And each every 30 days, one of the teams launches a new feature or product, um, something that's a marketing moment. I thought that that was really interesting. Are you doing anything to organize the team in a certain way that you think is interesting? <laughs> Yeah, so we have four main engineering teams with a director of engineering running each team who is coding probably more than half the time and also leading their team. We run two-week sprints, so we update the mobile apps for Android and iOS about every two weeks. Mm-hmm. We're working on um, a desktop version of Lola, which will be coming out really soon, so that you'll be able to book flights and hotels on Lola.com, not just on the app. Uh, That product is going to be updated daily. We're doing real-time releases and integrations on that. And although we're on a two-week synchronized sprint, each team is running their own project and their own process. Brendan kind of coordinates everything, Mm -hmm. but um, each engineering director might run things a little bit differently. And for some sprints, it's not the directors running the project. It could be an engineer and their team. If one engineer is the best person for a particular project, they run it, even if it's cross-functional and has to draw on programmers from other teams. We just anoint someone as a lead for a particular project, and then we trust them to figure out what they need to do to get everyone to do their tasks to get that done. Mm-hmm. And how do you fit into that process? I spend a lot of my time thinking about design and product specs and features, and I spend a lot of my time talking to customers and prospective customers Mm -hmm. in assessing product market fit to make sure that what we're building is what they care about and what they need. And there's this balance between you don't want to ask your customers, what should I build? Because you shouldn't assume that your customers are product managers and they can all see around corners. But you want to vet your ideas with them. And some of the ideas you do are novel. And it's something that a customer might not have thought of, but you feel so strongly about the innovation aspect, you build it, even though customers aren't asking for it. And then there are other things that customers are demanding, and you rush to get those out as well. So part of the art of product management is know how to, to balance both of those things and knowing how to leverage customer problems. So how do you feed what you're learning into the overall process at Lola? So believe it or not, we run the high-level product management 
this is going to sound ludicrous, but <laughs> we run our high-level product management process in a Google spreadsheet. I know that sounds crazy. We actually have more than one spreadsheet. We have a whole bunch of other tools to use as well. Yeah. But as far as getting the executive team in sync, we take inputs from people. So the sales team gives us input. The customer service team gives us input. The marketing team gives us input. We do a little bit of competitive analysis, although I should talk about that because I think we view competitors very differently than almost every tech company I've seen. But we take input from different groups. And then ultimately, Brendan, as a VP of product, he decides with input from me, but Brendan decides this is the top three things we're going to work on. Mm-hmm. And then we align people and we get it done. And we don't prescribe to the engineers, here's how to build something. And we also don't usually prescribe, build this thing first, this second, this third. We kind of put the tasks in place. And there are sometimes reasons why the engineers might say, you know what, I need to do task three first from an architectural standpoint or to get rid of some tech debt. So we give the engineers a lot of leeway about how to fix a certain problem that a customer has mm-hmm. and about in what order to do their tasks. But it's all kind of coordinated with Brendan as VP of product. So where in the flow is design happening for your team? So Lincoln, again, is our design chief. Right. He is also kind of a product manager. Mm-hmm. So he's really opinionated about what features are sort of MVP that you need to have a complete product and what features you need to do innovation and how that innovation supports the brand. So I think Lincoln has a good worldview on that type of thing. Our design is usually a little bit ahead of engineering. Um, Lincoln and Chris Sweet and other designers team are prolific, so they can crank out enormous amount of specs, but it's usually tied into the product management process. Mm-hmm. But they are designing or at least wireframing out screens in advance of development then? They are. And they use Sketch. And they don't do wireframes. They do pixel-perfect mocks. Mm -hmm. And they're really fast. Is that how you've done it in the past as well? Or are you able to work that way in part because they're fast? I mean, so Lincoln and I worked together at Kayak for 10 years. So it's how he and I worked at Kayak. We also want to make sure that the engineers and the rest of the company has a lot of input into what works and doesn't work. And so we'll have a design and it'll look pixel perfect and beautiful, but that doesn't mean it's usable. And so we want to make sure that customers bet our designs, that our customer service team bets the designs. The engineers might look at a design and hate it and say, if you thought about doing this instead of that. So the design is kind of a template for this is what we think should be done. And then there's rapid iterations on it. Mm -hmm. We do have a style guide as well. And um, we stick really closely to the style guide, both for desktop and for mobile. But there is iteration kind of in real time mm-hmm. with the details of what different dialogues look like or how screens are laid out, what fields are on it, et cetera. So you mentioned you think about competitors work against competitors differently. How, how is that? Yeah. And this is probably, I don't know if this is a strength of mine or a weakness of mine. It might very well be a weakness, but I personally don't really look at competitors. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because I think creative people are at their peak when they're seeing a problem for the first time. Yeah. And if, if you're seeing what another company, what their solution is, it kind of dirties the water for me because why be limited to how another company thinks about a problem? To me, what I like doing is talking to my customers and trying to really understand the problems as they articulate it and then seeing if I can come up with a solution that crushes their problem. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot more fun to work with customers than to study competitors. Yeah. So I don't really look at them so much. And it's, I I know it's actually a weakness of mine because 
probably a CEO, I should be more aware of my competitors. I do have a couple of people in my team who do look at competitors a little bit, but I make sure that we're not competitor led and instead that we're customer led and brand led. You know, I think it's probably from our similar perspective, but I, I think that that's what you want. <laughs> you know, it's probably not worth ignoring entirely, but like you started off the conversation with, uh, you know, customers and brand are really important. If you're not letting that lead the process, then <laughs> you're probably going to be brought in directions that, if not bad for business, they're probably bad for being fulfilled in your work. Yeah, I think that's right. So where you're at today with Lola and just in general, would you say that you're you're a goal setter or do you have a big vision? Do you have sort of like, here's where we want to be in this time frame, or are you more organic than that? So, I mean, at Kayak, we spent 10 years trying to change how consumers travel and what we're doing at Lola is trying to change how business travel works. Mm-hmm. And I want to make as big a mark and change the industry by coming up with innovative ways to approach things. So I want Lola to be kind of a reference from a design standpoint. People say, oh, let, let's look at how Lola did this or how Lola did that. And I want to make sure that there's just infectious enthusiasm by our customers that our customers become our best salespeople. And um, it was very gratifying for the 10 years I was at Kayak to be meeting people who would tell me how much they enjoyed Kayak and how they heard about it from a friend and how they would tell their friends about it. And we're trying to build the same thing for Lola, just that the customers themselves become so excited about the product and how it fits, solves their problems and just the look and feel the product, the speed of the product that they become our best salespeople. So to me, it's less about financial goals. Like, sure, I'd love to build another multi-billion dollar company. And, you know, I'm competitive and aggressive. I'm going to try to build the most valuable company I can. But realistically, from a day-to-day perspective, the thing I focus on is, is my team happy? Do they work well together? Are they excited? Do they love, you know, they love what they're working on? And do the customers love the product? And I would say I'm good at those two things. And hopefully other stuff just happens. Mm-hmm. Is there anybody who you would say is a business traveler who's not a target for Lola, either right now or you never see them being a target? Yeah. So right now, if you're a really small business, you only have two or three travelers, you might as well use Kayak or mm-hmm. whatever your favorite travel app is. It's once you have a bunch of people traveling that Lola really kicks into play because when you have 10 or 20 or more people traveling, at that point, you start getting some stress about, wait a minute, is this like the Wild Wild West where all my employees do whatever they want for travel? Or is there any coordination? Are there any guidelines? How do we do expense management? And we have a product called Lola Works. Mm -hmm. So Lola is our app that the travelers use for finding flights and hotels and booking them and managing their trip, et cetera. Then there's a product called Lola Works which is what the administrator runs, which could be either the CEO or the CFO or the executive assistant, whoever's the administrator of the company and thinks about travel across the company. And they run Lola Works and they can define some rules and guidelines that then influences what Lola looks like for all the other travelers. So it's kind of like a, you know, for your Unix knowledgeable audience, it's kind of like we're building a super user, a root account for mm-hmm. travel. Mm-hmm. And Lola Works is that. It's the root account that then modifies everything else. So you did a great job of outlining what your goals are overall for Lola. Aside from, hey, if we didn't have enough customers or we didn't become profitable or something like that, those are obvious business failures. But is there anything 
that you have in mind of like, this is the kind of company I want to create. And if I didn't, I would consider it a failure. Yeah. I mean, the, again, this might sound stupid, but literally the most important thing to me is are the employees like electrified by coming to work every day. Yeah. And what can I do every day to improve the culture of the company? And do they enjoy their work and they work together? Like that's my first order bit. That's the thing that tells me, are we on the right path? Do we have really talented people and do they love working here? And I know it sounds a little cliche, but it's literally how I'm wired to think. Mm-hmm. So as CEO, do you hold that same target in mind for yourself? Yeah. I mean, I measure in part the health of the company by how happy I am here. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I was up at 3.30 this morning writing a spec and um, I am very excited about coming to work every day. I love the problem space. I think generally business software is terrible. It's ugly and slow and cluttered and has too many options. And there's very few companies know how to build simple software. When I used to work for Scott Cook at Intuit, he used to say, it's really, really simple to build complicated software. Yeah, yeah. And of course what he meant is it's near, there's very few people, one out of 10,000 designers who can design things that are simple. And what we're trying to do is say business software is terrible. We're trying to do something really simple. And, um, I love the problem space. I love the team. I get excited here every day. So as far as my piece of the equation, I'm feeling pretty good about what things are like working here every day. Well, that's great. Paul, if people want to follow along with you or with Lola, where, where can they do that? So the easiest way to find out about Lola is through our website, lola.com. From there, you have links to our social media and to everything else. And if people want to learn more about other stuff I work on, they can just go to my one-page website, paulenglish.com, and there's a link there to a bunch of my nonprofit projects. I'm on six nonprofit boards, so if people want to learn what I do in that space, they can find that from my personal site. That's one of the things I wanted to ask about that I forgot about. Like, How do you balance all of that other stuff that you do? This is an area of my life where I'm pretty methodical. I use Google Calendar. Mm -hmm. I have an amazing assistant, Eliza. And we color code my calendar. Everything in there is one of four colors. And we meet at the beginning and end of the week. And we always look two weeks ahead in my calendar, make sure that's the right balance I want. So mm-hmm. blue is for Lola meetings, which is Monday, Friday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Every day I'm open for lunch from noon to two for Lola-related lunch. You just grab whoever's in the office and talking about whatever they're working on. Yellow is for my nonprofit work. I do about 10 hours a week of nonprofit meetings, which are typically breakfast meetings or sometimes I host fundraisers at night, like small dinner parties. Mm -hmm. Green is self-investment. So going to the gym, going to a meditation class, you know, things like that. And then everything else is purple, which is like friends and family. And when I look at my calendar, I'm just opening my calendar in front of me right now. I just want to make sure there's a really good balance. It looks like I'm touching all four areas of my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, Eliza also does, she knows what balance I'm looking for. And she does a pretty good job helping me maintain that. You mentioned earlier that you were up at 3.30 working on a spec. Is that a normal schedule for you or is that an exception? Not normal. It's something that I had met with a few people on the team yesterday that we talked about. It's a new feature that we're going to be developing, which is a pretty major feature for us. And I literally woke up at 3.30 with an idea. Mm-hmm. And I don't always like get out of bed at 3.30, but um, I had an idea I was pretty excited about. So I got up and wrote a spec. Are you a morning person in general? 
I think so. I used to, like for many, many years, I slept only four or five hours a night, sometimes less than that. I'm actually bipolar, which probably contributes to the fact that I can go through these sort of manic or hypomanic periods where I sleep very, very little. But I would say the last couple of years, I now am on a pattern where usually I do get a full eight hours sleep. Yeah, I start work from home, usually around 6 a.m. I'll get up and meditate, have breakfast, and then do email and specs. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk more about you being bipolar? Yeah, sure. It's something I have talked about before. I always want to make sure that people don't romanticize mental illness because Mm -hmm. while there are some positive attributes, there's also a lot of downside. And there's different degrees of, let's say, for bipolar, bipolar illness. And I've often said that if I was 10% more bipolar, I might be homeless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, there's a balance. And it's something that I've been able to manage. And there are downsides. Like in my 20s, I had really bad depression. And I would have panic attacks. And sometimes I'd spend days in my bedroom. Then on the flip side, when I'm manic or hypomanic, I race, I'm probably filled with a lot of grandiosity, mm-hmm. thinking like, okay, this is the next greatest invention. I end up disconnecting from people who, when I'm in a manic phase, I perceive other people as slow. There's a balance you have to keep to make it all work. And I'm very intentional about my healthcare, which is mm-hmm. you know physical and mental and everything else. So it's something I try to keep in check. And I feel like I've had a really good balance the last few years, so things are feeling good right now. Generally, the people that you work with know this about you? I think so. It's not something that I like wear T-shirts saying right. about bipolar, but um, people know that because I'm comfortable talking about my shit, they also then sometimes feel more comfortable coming to me if they're mm-hmm. struggling with problems. So I think it's been helpful from that standpoint. Well, I'm happy to hear that you feel like you've been in a, a really good place these past few years, and maybe it's no coincidence that during that time you've created the great product, Lola. <laughs> well, thanks so much. Thanks, Paul. I really appreciate it. All right. Nice talk with you. Well, that about does it for this episode of the Giant Robots Smashing Another Giant Robots podcast. I wanted to tell you that we've got a number of leadership and individual contributor positions open at ThoughtBot right now in both design and development, as well as the unique opportunity to work directly with me as managing director of our New York studio. Managing directors at ThoughtBot lead the sales and business operations of the studio, fostering relationships with partners and growing ThoughtBot's reputation as a leader in your city. For more information and to apply, visit thoughtbot.com jobs or email me at chad at thoughtbot.com. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.